Wealthfront's strategy was premised on the assumption that professional money managers would be reluctant to join the system because the increased transparency would threaten their sense of authority. Powers had no such concerns. CEO Andy Ratcliffe then began a series of conversations with other professional investment managers and brought the results back to the company. His insights were as follows. One, successful professional money managers felt they had nothing to fear from transparency since they believed it would validate their skills. Two, money managers faced significant challenges in managing and scaling their own businesses. They were hampered by the difficulty of servicing their own accounts and therefore had to require high minimum investments as a way to screen new clients. The second problem was so severe that Wealthfront was fielding cold calls from professional managers asking out of the blue to join the platform. These were classic early adopters who had the vision to see past the current product to something they could use to achieve a competitive advantage. The second critical qualitative information came out of conversations with consumers. It turned out that they found the blending of virtual and real portfolio management on the Kaching website confusing. Far from being a clever way of acquiring customers, the freemium strategy was getting in the way by promoting confusion about the company's positioning. This data informed the Pivot or Persevere meeting. With everyone present, the team debated what to do with its future. The current strategy wasn't working, but many employees were nervous about abandoning the online game. After all, it was an important part of what they had signed on to build. They had invested significant time and energy building and supporting those customers. It was painful, as it always is, to realize that energy had been wasted. Wealthfront decided it could not persevere as it existed. The company chose instead to celebrate what it had learned. If it had not launched its current product, the team never would have learned what it needed to know to pivot. In fact, the experience taught them something essential about their vision. As Andy says, what we really wanted to change was not who manages the money, but who has access to the best possible talent. We'd originally thought we'd need to build a significant business with amateur managers to get professionals to come on board. But fortunately, it turns out that wasn't necessary. The company pivoted, abandoning the gaming customers altogether and focusing on providing a service that allowed customers to invest with professional managers. On the surface, the pivot seems quite dramatic in that the company changed its positioning, its name, and its partner strategy. It even jettisoned a large proportion of the features it had built. But at its core, a surprising amount stayed the same. The most valuable work the company had done was building the technology to evaluate managers' effectiveness, and this became the kernel around which the new business was built. This is also common with pivots. It is not necessary to throw out everything that came before and start over. Instead, it's about repurposing what has been built and what has been learned to find a more positive direction. Today, Wealthfront is prospering as a result of its pivot with over $180 million invested on the platform and more than 40 professional managers. It recently was named one of Fast Company's 10 most innovative companies in finance. The company continues to operate with agility, scaling in line with the growth principles outlined in Chapter 12. 
Wealthfront is also a leading advocate of the development technique known as continuous deployment, which we'll discuss in Chapter 9. Failure to Pivot The decision to pivot is so difficult that many companies fail to make it. I wish I could say that every time I was confronted with the need to pivot, I handled it well. But this is far from true. I remember one failure to pivot especially well. A few years after Inview's founding, the company was having tremendous success. The business had grown to over $1 million per month in revenue. We had created more than 20 million avatars for our customers. We managed to raise significant new rounds of financing, and like the global economy, we were riding high. But danger lurked around the corner. Unknowingly, we had fallen into a classic startup trap. We had been so successful with our early efforts that we were ignoring the principles behind them. As a result, we missed the need to pivot even as it stared us in the face. We had built an organization that excelled at the kinds of activities described in earlier chapters, creating minimum viable products to test new ideas and running experiments to tune the engine of growth. Before we had begun to enjoy success, many people had advised against our low-quality minimum viable product and experimental approach urging us to slow down. They wanted us to do things right and focus on quality instead of speed. We ignored that advice, mostly because we wanted to claim the advantages of speed. After our approach was vindicated, the advice we received changed. Now most of the advice we heard was that you can't argue with success, urging us to stay the course. We liked this advice better, but it was equally wrong. Remember that the rationale for building low-quality MVPs is that developing any features beyond what early adopters require is a form of waste. However, the logic of this takes you only so far. Once you have found success with early adopters, you want to sell to mainstream customers. Mainstream customers have different requirements and are much more demanding. The kind of pivot we needed is called a customer segment pivot. In this pivot, the company realizes that the product it's building solves a real problem for real customers, but that they are not the customers it originally planned to serve. In other words, the product hypothesis is confirmed only partially. This chapter describes such a pivot in the Vodison story above. A customer segment pivot is an especially tricky pivot to execute because, as we learn the hard way at Inview, the very actions that made us successful with early adopters were diametrically opposed to the actions we'd have to master to be successful with mainstream customers. We lacked a clear understanding of how our engine of growth operated. We had begun to trust our vanity metrics. We had stopped using learning milestones to hold ourselves accountable. Instead, it was much more convenient to focus on the ever-larger gross metrics that were so exciting. Breaking new records in signing up paying customers and active users, monitoring our customer retention rate, you name it. Under the surface, it should have been clear that our efforts at tuning the engine were reaching diminishing returns, the classic sign of the need to pivot. For example, we spent months trying to improve the product's activation rate, the rate at which new customers become active consumers of the product, which remained stubbornly low. We did countless experiments, usability improvements, new persuasion techniques, incentive programs, customer quests, and other game-like features. Individually, many of these new features and new marketing tools were successful. 
We measured them rigorously using A-B experimentation. But taken in aggregate, over the course of many months, we were seeing negligible changes in the overall drivers of our engine of growth. Even our activation rate, which had been at the center of our focus, edged up only a few percentage points. We ignored the signs because the company was still growing, delivering month after month of up-and-to-the-right results. But we were quickly exhausting our early adopter market. It was getting harder and harder to find customers we could acquire at the prices we were accustomed to paying. As we drove our marketing team to find more customers, they were forced to reach out more to mainstream customers. But mainstream customers are less forgiving of an early product. The activation and monetization rates of new customers started to go down, driving up the cost of acquiring new customers. Pretty soon, our growth was flatlining and our engine sputtered and stalled. It took us far too long to make the changes necessary to fix this situation. As with all pivots, we had to get back to basics and start the innovation accounting cycle over. It felt like the company's second founding. We had gotten really good at optimizing, tuning, and iterating. But in the process, we had lost sight of the purpose of those activities, testing a clear hypothesis in the service of the company's vision. Instead, we were chasing growth, revenue, and profits wherever we could find them. We needed to reacquaint ourselves with our new mainstream customers. Our interaction designers led the way by developing a clear customer archetype that was based on extensive in-person conversations and observation. Next, we needed to invest heavily in a major product overhaul designed to make the product dramatically easier to use. Because of our overfocus on fine-tuning, we had stopped making large investments like these, preferring to invest in lower-risk and lower-yield testing experiments. However, investing in quality, design, and larger projects did not require that we abandon our experimental roots. On the contrary, once we realized our mistake and executed the pivot, those skills served us well. We created a sandbox for experimentation, like the one described in Chapter 12, and had a cross-functional team work exclusively on this major redesign. As they built, they continuously tested their new design head-to-head -head against the old one. Initially, the new design performed worse than the old one, as is usually the case. It lacked the features and functionality of the old design and had many new mistakes as well. But the team relentlessly improved the design until, months later, it performed better. This new design laid the foundation for our future growth. This foundation has paid off handsomely. By 2009, Revenue had more than doubled to over $25 million annually, but we might have enjoyed that success earlier if we had pivoted sooner. A Catalog of Pivots Pivots come in different flavors. The word pivot sometimes is used incorrectly as a synonym for change. A pivot is a special kind of change designed to test a new fundamental hypothesis about the product business model, and engine of growth. Zoom-in pivot. In this case, what previously was considered a single feature in a product becomes the whole product. This is the type of pivot Vodizen made when it pivoted away from a full social network and toward a simple voter contact product. Zoom-out pivot. 
In the reverse situation, sometimes a single feature is insufficient to support a whole product. In this type of pivot, what was considered the whole product becomes a single feature of a much larger product. Customer Segment Pivot In this pivot, the company realizes that the product it is building solves a real problem for real customers, but that they are not the type of customers it originally planned to serve. In other words, the product hypothesis is partially confirmed, solving the right problem but for a different customer than originally anticipated. Customer Need Pivot As a result of getting to know customers extremely well, it sometimes becomes clear that the problem we're trying to solve for them is not very important. However, because of this customer intimacy, we often discover other related problems that are important and can be solved by our team. In many cases, these related problems may require little more than repositioning the existing product. In other cases, it may require a completely new product. Again, this is a case where the product hypothesis is partially confirmed. The target customer has a problem worth solving, just not the one that was originally anticipated. A famous example is the chain Potbelly Sandwich Shop, which today has over 200 stores. It began as an antique store in 1977. The owner started to sell sandwiches as a way to bolster traffic to their stores. Pretty soon, they had pivoted their way into an entirely different line of business. Platform Pivot A platform pivot refers to a change from an application to a platform, or vice versa. Most commonly, startups that aspire to create a new platform begin life by selling a single application, the so-called killer app, for their platform. Only later does the platform emerge as a vehicle for third parties to leverage as a way to create their own related products. However, this order is not always set in stone, and some companies have to execute this pivot multiple times. Business Architecture Pivot This pivot borrows a concept from Jeffrey Moore, who observed that companies generally follow one of two major business architectures, high-margin, low-volume, complex systems model, or low-margin, high-volume, the volume operations model. The former commonly is associated with business-to-business -business or enterprise sales cycles, and the latter with consumer products. There are notable exceptions. In a business architecture pivot, a startup switches architectures. Some companies change from a high-margin, low-volume by going mass-market, such as Google's search appliance. Others, originally designed for the mass-market, turned out to require long and expensive sales cycles. Value Capture Pivot There are many ways to capture the value a company creates. These methods are referred to commonly as monetization or revenue models. These terms are much too limiting. Implicit in the idea of monetization is that it is a separate feature of a product that can be added or removed at will. In reality, capturing value is an intrinsic part of the product hypothesis. Often, Changes to the way a company captures value can have far-reaching consequences for the rest of the business, product, and marketing strategies. Engine of Growth Pivot As we'll see in Chapter 10, there are three primary engines of growth that power startups, the viral, sticky, and paid growth models. In this type of pivot, 
a company changes its growth strategy to seek faster or more profitable growth. Commonly, but not always, the engine of growth also requires a change in the way value is captured. Channel Pivot In traditional sales terminology, the mechanism by which a company delivers its products to customers is called the sales channel or distribution channel. For example, consumer packaged goods are sold in a grocery store, cars are sold in dealerships, and much enterprise software is sold, with extensive customization, by consulting and professional services firms. Often, the requirements of the channel determine the price, features, and competitive landscape of a product. A channel pivot is a recognition that the same basic solution could be delivered through a different channel with greater effectiveness. Whenever a company abandons a previously complex sales process to sell direct to its end users, a channel pivot is in progress. It is precisely because of its destructive effect on sales channels that the Internet has had such a disruptive influence in industries that previously required complex sales and distribution channels, such as newspaper, magazine, and book publishing. Technology Pivot Occasionally, a company discovers a way to achieve the same solution by using a completely different technology. Technology pivots are much more common in established businesses. In other words, they are a sustaining innovation, an incremental improvement designed to appeal to and retain an existing customer base. Established companies excel at this kind of pivot because so much is not changing. The customer segment is the same. The customer's problem is the same. The value capture model is the same. And the channel partners are the same. The only question is whether the new technology can provide superior price and or performance compared with the existing technology. A pivot is a strategic hypothesis. Although the pivots identified above will be familiar to students of business strategy, the ability to pivot is no substitute for sound strategic thinking. The problem with providing famous examples of pivots is that most people are familiar only with the successful end strategies of famous companies. Most readers know that Southwest or Walmart is an example of a low-cost disruption in their markets, that Microsoft an example of a platform monopoly, and that Starbucks has leveraged a powerful premium brand. What is generally less well-known are the pivots that were required to discover those strategies. Companies have a strong incentive to align their PR stories around the heroic founder and make it seem that their success was the inevitable result of a good idea. Thus, although startups often pivot into a strategy that seems similar to that of a successful company, it is important not to put too much stock in these analogies. It's extremely difficult to know if the analogy has been drawn properly. Have we copied the essential features or just superficial ones? Will what worked in that industry work in ours? Will what has worked in the past work today? A pivot is better understood as a new strategic hypothesis that will require a new minimum viable product to test. Pivots are a permanent fact of life for any growing business. Even after a company achieves initial success, it must continue to pivot. Those familiar with the technology lifecycle ideas of theorists such as Jeffrey Moore know certain later stage pivots by the names he has given them, the chasm, 
the tornado, the bowling alley. Readers of the disruptive innovation literature, spearheaded by Harvard's Clayton Christensen, will be familiar with established companies that fail to pivot when they should. The critical skill for managers today is to match those theories to their present situation so that they apply the right advice at the right time. Modern managers cannot have escaped the deluge of recent books calling on them to adapt, change, reinvent, or upend their existing businesses. Many of the works in this category are long on exhortations and short on specifics. A pivot is not just an exhortation to change. Remember, it is a special kind of structured change designed to test a new fundamental hypothesis about the product, business model, and engine of growth. It is the heart of the Lean Startup method. It is what makes the companies that follow Lean Startup resilient in the face of mistakes. If we take a wrong turn, we have the tools we need to realize it and the agility to find another path. In part two, we have looked at a startup idea from its initial leaps of faith, tested it with a minimum viable product, used innovation accounting and actionable metrics to evaluate the results, and made the decision to pivot or persevere. I have treated these subjects in great detail to prepare for what comes next. On the page, these processes may seem clinical, slow, and simple. In the real world, something different is needed. We have learned to steer when moving slowly. Now we must learn to race. Laying a solid foundation is only the first step towards our real destination, acceleration. Part 3. Accelerate. Start your engines. Most of the decisions startups face are not clear-cut. How often should you release a product? Is there a reason to release weekly rather than daily or quarterly or annually? Product releases incur overhead, and so from an efficiency point of view, releasing often leaves less time to devote to building the product. However, waiting too long to release can lead to the ultimate waste, making something that nobody wants. How much time and energy should companies invest in infrastructure and planning early on in anticipation of success? Spend too much and you waste precious time that could have been spent learning. Spend too little and you may fail to take advantage of early success and cede market leadership to a fast follower. What should employees spend their days doing? How do we hold people accountable for learning at an organizational level? Traditional departments create incentive structures that keep people focused on excellence in their specialties, marketing, sales, product development. But what if the company's best interests are served by cross-functional collaboration? Startups need organizational structures that combat the extreme uncertainty that is a startup's chief enemy. The lean manufacturing movement faced similar questions on the factory floor. Their answers are relevant for startups as well with some modifications. The critical first question for any lean transformation is, which activities create value and which are a form of waste? Once you understand this distinction, you can begin using lean techniques to drive out waste and increase the efficiency of value-creating activities. For these techniques to be used in a startup, 
they must be adapted to the unique circumstances of entrepreneurship. Recall from Chapter 3 that value in a startup is not the creation of stuff, but rather validated learning about how to build a sustainable business. What products do customers really want? How will our business grow? Who is our customer? Which customers should we listen to and which should we ignore? These are the questions that need answering as quickly as possible to maximize a startup's chances of success. This is what creates value for a startup. In Part 3, we will develop techniques that allow lean startups to grow without sacrificing the speed and agility that are the lifeblood of every startup. Contrary to common belief, lethargy and bureaucracy are not the inevitable fate of companies as they achieve maturity. I believe that with the proper foundation, lean startups can grow to become lean enterprises that maintain their agility, learning orientation, and culture of innovation even as they scale. In Chapter 9, we will see how lean startups take advantage of the counterintuitive power of small batches. Just as lean manufacturing has pursued a just-in-time approach to building products, reducing the need for in-process inventory, lean startups practice just-in-time scalability, conducting product experiments without making massive upfront investments in planning and design. Chapter 10 will explore the metrics startups should use to understand their growth as they add new customers and discover new markets. Sustainable growth follows one of three engines of growth, paid, viral, or sticky. By identifying which engine of growth a startup is using, it can then direct energy where it will be most effective in growing the business. Each engine requires a focus on unique metrics to evaluate the success of new products and prioritize new experiments. When used with the innovation accounting method described in Part 2, these metrics allow startups to figure out when their growth is at risk of running out and pivot accordingly. Chapter 11 shows how to build an adaptive organization by investing in the right amount of process to keep teams nimble as they grow. We will see how techniques from the toolkit of lean manufacturing, such as the five whys, help startup teams grow without becoming bureaucratic or dysfunctional. We also will see how lean disciplines set the stage for a startup to transition into an established company driven by operational excellence. In Chapter 12, we'll come full circle. As startups grow into established companies, they face the same pressures that make it necessary for today's enterprises to find new ways to invest in disruptive innovation. In fact, we'll see that an advantage of a successful startup's rapid growth is that the company can keep its entrepreneurial DNA even as it matures. Today's companies must learn to master a management portfolio of sustaining and disruptive innovation. It is an obsolete view that sees startups as going through discrete phases that leave earlier kinds of work, such as innovation, behind. Rather, modern companies must excel at doing multiple kinds of work in parallel. To do so, we'll explore techniques for incubating innovation teams within the context of an established company. I have included an epilogue called Waste Not, in which I consider some of the broader implications of the success of the lean startup movement, place it in historical context, including cautionary lessons from past movements, and make suggestions for its future direction.
Chapter 9. Batch. In the book Lean Thinking, James Womack and Daniel Jones recount a story of stuffing newsletters into envelopes with the assistance of one of the author's two young children. Every envelope had to be addressed, stamped, filled with a letter, and sealed. The daughters, aged six and nine, knew how they should go about completing the project. Daddy, first you should fold all of the newsletters, then you should attach the seal, then you should put on the stamps. Their father wanted to do it the counterintuitive way, complete each envelope one at a time. They, like most of us, thought that was backward, explaining to him that wouldn't be efficient. He and his daughters each took half the envelopes and competed to see who would finish first. The father won the race, and not just because he's an adult. It happened because the one-envelope-at-a-time approach is a faster way of getting the job done, even though it seems inefficient. This has been confirmed in many studies. The one-envelope-at-a-time approach is called single-piece flow in lean manufacturing. It works because of the surprising power of small batches. When we do work that proceeds in stages, the batch size refers to how much work moves from one stage to the next at a time. For example, if we were stuffing 100 envelopes, the intuitive way to do it, folding 100 letters at a time, would have a batch size of 100. Single-piece flow is so named because it has a batch size of 1. Why does stuffing one envelope at a time get the job done faster, even though it seems like it would be slower? Because our intuition doesn't take into account the extra time required to sort, stack, and move around the large piles of half-complete envelopes when it's done the other way. It seems more efficient to repeat the same task over and over, in part because we expect that we will get better at this simple task the more we do it. Unfortunately, in process-oriented work like this, individual performance is not nearly as important as the overall performance of the system. Even if the amount of time that each process took was exactly the same, the small-batch production approach still would be superior, and for even more counterintuitive reasons. For example, imagine the letters didn't fit in the envelopes. With the large-batch approach, we wouldn't find that out until nearly the end. With small batches, we'd know almost immediately. What if the envelopes are defective and won't seal? In the large batch approach, we'd have to unstuff all the envelopes, get new ones, and restuff them. In the small batch approach, we'd find this out immediately and have no rework required. All these issues are visible in a process as simple as stuffing envelopes but they are of real and much greater consequence in the work of every company, large or small. The small batch approach produces a finished product every few seconds, whereas the large batch approach must deliver all the products at once at the end. Imagine what this might look like if the time horizon was hours, days, or weeks. What if it turns out that the customers had decided they don't want the product? Which process would allow a company to find this out sooner? Lean manufacturers discovered the benefit of small batches decades ago. In the post-World War II economy, Japanese car makers such as Toyota could not compete with huge American factories that used the latest mass production techniques. 
Following the intuitively efficient way of building, mass production factories built cars by using ever larger batch sizes. They would spend huge amounts of money buying machines that could produce car parts by the tens, hundreds, or thousands. By keeping those machines running at peak speed, they could drive down the unit cost of each part and produce cars that were incredibly inexpensive, so long as they were completely uniform. The Japanese car market was far too small for companies such as Toyota to employ those economies of scale. Thus, Japanese companies faced intense pressure from mass production. Also, in the war-ravaged Japanese economy, capital was not available for massive investments in large machines. It was against this backdrop that innovators such as Taichi Ono, Shigeo Shingo, and others found a way to succeed by using small batches. Instead of buying large, specialized machines that could generate thousands of parts at a time, Toyota used smaller, general-purpose machines that could produce a wide variety of parts in small batches. This required figuring out ways to reconfigure each machine rapidly to make the right part at the right time. By focusing on this changeover time, Toyota was able to produce entire automobiles by using small batches throughout the process. This rapid changing of machines was no easy feat. As in any lean transformation, existing systems and tools often needed to be reinvented to support working in smaller batches. Shigeo Shingo created the concept of SMED, Single Minute Exchange of Dye, in order to enable a smaller batch size of work in early Toyota factories. He was so relentless in rethinking the way machines were operated that he was able to reduce changeover times that previously took hours to less than 10 minutes. He did this not by asking workers to work faster, but by reimagining and restructuring the work that needed to be done. Every investment in better tools and process had a corresponding benefit in terms of shrinking the batch size of work. Because of its smaller batch size, Toyota was able to produce a much greater diversity of products. It was no longer necessary that each product be exactly the same to gain the economies of scale that powered mass production. Thus, Toyota could serve its smaller, more fragmented markets and still compete with the mass producers. Over time, that capability allowed Toyota to move successfully into larger and larger markets until it became the world's largest automaker in 2008. The biggest advantage of working in small batches is that quality problems can be identified much sooner. This is the origin of Toyota's famous Andon cord, which allows any worker to ask for help as soon as they notice any problem, such as a defect in a physical part, stopping the entire production line if it cannot be corrected immediately. This is another very counterintuitive practice. An assembly line works best when it is functioning smoothly, rolling car after car off the end of the line. The Andon cord can interrupt this careful flow as the line is halted repeatedly. However, the benefits of finding and fixing problems faster outweigh this cost. This process of continuously driving out defects has been a win-win for Toyota and its customers. It is the root cause of Toyota's historic high quality ratings and low costs. Small Batches in Entrepreneurship When I teach entrepreneurs this method, I often begin with stories about manufacturing. Before long, I can see the questioning looks. 
what does this have to do with my startup? The theory that is the foundation of Toyota's success can be used to dramatically improve the speed at which startups find validated learning. Toyota discovered that small batches made their factories more efficient. In contrast, in the lean startup, the goal is not to produce more stuff efficiently. It is to, as quickly as possible, learn how to build a sustainable business. Think back to the example of envelope stuffing. What if it turns out that the customer doesn't want the product we're building? Although this is never good news for an entrepreneur, finding out sooner is much better than finding out later. Working in small batches ensures that a startup can minimize the expenditure of time, money, and effort that ultimately turns out to have been wasted. Small Batches at Imview At Imview, we applied these lessons from manufacturing to the way we work. Normally, new versions of products like ours are released to customers on a monthly, quarterly, or yearly cycle. Take a look at your cell phone. Odds are it is not the very first version of its kind. Even innovative companies such as Apple produce a new version of their flagship phones about once a year. Bundled up in that product release are dozens of new features. At the release of the iPhone 4, Apple boasted more than 1,500 changes. Ironically, many high-tech products are manufactured in advanced facilities that follow the latest in lean thinking, including small batches and single-piece flow. However, the process that is used to design the product is stuck in the era of mass production. Think of all the changes that are made to a product such as the iPhone. All 1,500 of them are released to customers in one giant batch. Behind the scenes, in the development and design of the product itself, large batches are still the rule. The work that goes into the development of a new product proceeds on a virtual assembly line. Product managers figure out what features are likely to please customers. Product designers then figure out how those features should look and feel. These designs are passed to engineering, which builds something new or modifies an existing product and, once this is done, hands it off to somebody responsible for verifying that the new product works the way the product managers and designers intended. For a product such as the iPhone, these internal handoffs may happen on a monthly or quarterly basis. Think back one more time to the envelope stuffing exercise. What is the most efficient way to do this work? At Imview, we attempted to design, develop, and ship our new features one at a time, taking advantage of the power of small batches. Here's what it looked like. Instead of working in separate departments, Engineers and designers would work together side-by-side side on one feature at a time. Whenever that feature was ready to be tested with customers, they immediately would release a new version of the product, which would go live on our website for a relatively small number of people. The team would be able immediately to assess the impact of their work, evaluate its effect on customers, and decide what to do next. For tiny changes, the whole process might be repeated several times per day. In fact, in the aggregate, Imview makes about 50 changes to its product on average every single day. Just as with the Toyota production system, the key to being able to operate this quickly is to check for defects immediately, thus preventing bigger problems later. For example, 
we had an extensive set of automated tests that assured that after every change, our product still worked as designed. Let's say an engineer accidentally removed an important feature, such as the checkout button on one of our e-commerce pages. Without this button, customers no longer could buy anything from InView. It's as if our business instantly became a hobby. Analogously to the Toyota Andon Cord, InView used an elaborate set of defense mechanisms that prevented engineers from accidentally breaking something important. We called this our product's immune system because those automatic protections went beyond checking that the product behaved as expected. We also continuously monitored the health of our business itself so that mistakes were found and removed automatically. Going back to our business-to-hobby example of the missing checkout button, let's make the problem a little more interesting. Imagine that instead of removing the button altogether, an engineer makes a mistake and changes the button's color so that it is now white on a white background. From the point of view of automated functional tests, the button is still there and everything is working normally. From the customer's point of view, the button is gone, and so nobody can buy anything. This class of problems is hard to detect solely with automation, but is still catastrophic from a business point of view. At InView, our immune system is programmed to detect these business consequences and automatically invoke our equivalent of the Andon cord. When our immune system detects a problem, a number of things happen immediately. One, the defective change is removed immediately and automatically. Two, everyone on the relevant team is notified of the problem. Three, the team is blocked from introducing any further changes preventing the problem from being compounded by future mistakes. 4. Until the root cause of the problem is found and fixed. This root cause analysis is discussed in greater detail in Chapter 11. At InView, we called this continuous deployment, and even in the fast-moving world of software development, it is still considered controversial. As the lean startup movement has gained traction, it has come to be embraced by more and more startups, even those that operate mission-critical applications. Among the most cutting-edge examples is Wealthfront, whose pivot was described in Chapter 8. The company practices true continuous deployment, including more than a dozen releases to customers every day in an SEC-regulated environment. Continuous Deployment Beyond Software when I tell this story to people who work in a slower-moving industry, they think I am describing something futuristic. But increasingly, more and more industries are seeing their design process accelerated by the same underlying forces that make this kind of rapid iteration possible in the software industry. There are three ways in which this is happening. One, hardware becoming software. Think about what has happened in consumer electronics. The latest phones and tablet computers are little more than a screen connected to the Internet. Almost all of their value is determined by their software. Even old-school products such as automobiles are seeing ever-larger parts of their value being generated by the software they carry inside, which controls everything from the entertainment system to tuning the engine to controlling the brakes. What can be built out of software can be modified much faster than a physical or mechanical device can. 2. Fast production changes. 
Because of the success of the lean manufacturing movement, many assembly lines are set up to allow each new product that comes off the line to be customized completely without sacrificing quality or cost effectiveness. Historically, this has been used to offer the customer many choices of product, but in the future, this capability will allow the designers of products to get much faster feedback about new versions. When the design changes, there is no excess inventory of the old version to slow things down. Since machines are designed for rapid changeovers, as soon as the new design is ready, new versions can be produced quickly. 3. 3D Printing and Rapid Prototyping Tools As just one example, most products and parts that are made out of plastic today are mass-produced using a technique called injection molding. This process is extremely expensive and time-consuming to set up, but once it is up and running, it can reproduce hundreds of thousands of identical individual items at an extremely low cost. It is a classic large-batch production process. This has put entrepreneurs who want to develop a new physical product at a disadvantage, since in general only large companies can afford these large production runs for a new product. However, new technologies are allowing entrepreneurs to build small batches of products that are of the same quality as products made with injection molding, but at much lower cost and much, much faster. The essential lesson is not that everyone should be shipping 50 times per day but that by reducing batch size, we can get through the build-measure-learn feedback loop more quickly than our competitors can. The ability to learn faster from customers is the essential competitive advantage that startups must possess. Small Batches in Action To see this process in action, let me introduce you to a company in Boise, Idaho, called SGW DesignWorks. SGW's specialty is rapid production techniques for physical products. Many of its clients are startups. SGW DesignWorks was engaged by a client who had been asked by a military customer to build a complex field X-ray system to detect explosives and other destructive devices at border crossings and in war zones. Conceptually, the system consisted of an advanced head unit that read X-ray film, multiple X-ray film panels, and the framework to hold the panels while the film was being exposed. The client already had the technology for the X-ray panels and the head unit, but to make the product work in rugged military settings, SGW needed to design and deliver the supporting structure that would make the technology usable in the field. The framework had to be stable to ensure a quality X-ray image, durable enough for use in a war zone, easy to deploy with minimal training, and small enough to collapse into a backpack. This is precisely the kind of product we are accustomed to thinking takes months or years to develop. Yet new techniques are shrinking that timeline. SGW immediately began to generate visual prototypes by using 3D computer-aided design software. The 3D models served as a rapid communication tool between the client and the SGW team to make early design decisions. The team and client settled on a design that used an advanced locking hinge to provide the collapsibility required without compromising stability. The design also integrated a suction cup pump mechanism to allow for fast, repeatable attachment to the X-ray panels. Sounds complicated, right? 
Three days later, the SGW team delivered the first physical prototypes to the client. The prototypes were machined out of aluminum directly from the 3D model using a technique called computer numerical control and were hand-assembled by the SGW team. The client immediately took the prototypes to its military contact for review. The general concept was accepted with a number of minor design modifications. In the next five days, another full cycle of design iteration, prototyping, and design review was completed by the client and SGW. The first production run of 40 completed units was ready for delivery three and a half weeks after the initiation of the development project. SGW realized that this was a winning model because feedback on design decisions was nearly instantaneous. The team used the same process to design and deliver eight products serving a wide range of functions in a 12-month period. Half of those products are generating revenue today, and the rest are awaiting initial orders, all thanks to the power of working in small batches. Small Batches in Education Not every type of product, as it exists today, allows for design change in small batches, but that is no excuse for sticking to outdated methods. A significant amount of work may be needed to enable innovators to experiment in small batches. As was pointed out in Chapter 2, for established companies looking to accelerate their innovation teams, building this platform for experimentation is the responsibility of senior management. Imagine that you are a school teacher in charge of teaching math to middle school students. Although you may teach concepts in small batches, one day at a time, your overall curriculum cannot change very often. Because you must set up the curriculum in advance and teach the same concepts in the same order to every student in the classroom, you can try a new curriculum at most only once a year. How could a math teacher experiment with small batches? Under the current large batch system for educating students, it would be quite difficult. Our current educational system was designed in the era of mass production and uses large batches extensively. A new breed of startups is working hard to change all that. In School of One, students have daily playlists of their learning tasks that are attuned to each student's learning needs based on that student's readiness and learning style. For example, Julia is way ahead of grade level in math and learns best in small groups. So her playlist might include three or four videos matched to her aptitude level, a 30-minute one-on-one tutoring session with her teacher, and a small group activity in which she works on a math puzzle with three peers at similar aptitude levels. There are assessments built into each activity so that data can be fed back to the teacher to choose appropriate tasks for the next playlist. This data can be aggregated across classes, schools, or even whole districts. Now imagine trying to experiment with a curriculum by using a tool such as School of One. Each student is working at his or her own pace. Let's say you are a teacher who has a new sequence in mind for how math concepts should be taught. You can see immediately the impact of the change on those of your students who are at that point in the curriculum. If you judge it to be a good change, you could roll it out immediately for every single student. When they get to that part of the curriculum, 
they will get the new sequence automatically. In other words, tools like School of One enable teachers to work in much smaller batches to the benefit of their students. And as tools reach wide-scale adoption, successful experiments by individual teachers can be rolled out district, city, or even nationwide. This approach is having an impact and earning accolades. Time Magazine recently included School of One in its Most Innovative Ideas list. It was the only educational organization to make the list. The Large Batch Death Spiral Small batches pose a challenge to managers steeped in traditional notions of productivity and progress because they believe that functional specialization is more efficient for expert workers. Imagine you're a product designer overseeing a new product and you need to produce 30 individual design drawings. It probably seems that the most efficient way to work is in seclusion, by yourself, producing the designs one by one. Then, when you're done with all of them, you pass the drawings on to the engineering team and let them work. In other words, you work in large batches. From the point of view of individual efficiency, working in large batches makes sense. It also has other benefits. It promotes skill building, makes it easier to hold individual contributors accountable, and most important, allows experts to work without interruption. At least, that's the theory. Unfortunately, reality seldom works out that way. Consider our hypothetical example. After passing 30 design drawings to engineering, the designer is free to turn his or her attention to the next project. But remember the problems that came up during the envelope stuffing exercise. What happens when engineering has questions about how the drawings are supposed to work? What if some of the drawings are unclear? What if something goes wrong when engineering attempts to use the drawings? These problems inevitably turn into interruptions for the designer, and now those interruptions are interfering with the next large batch the designer is supposed to be working on. If the drawings need to be redone, the engineers may become idle while they wait for the rework to be completed. If the designer is not available, the engineers may have to redo the designs themselves. This is why so few products are actually built the way they are designed. When I work with product managers and designers in companies that use large batches, I often discover that they have to redo their work five or six times for every release. One product manager I worked with was so inundated with interruptions that he took to coming into the office in the middle of the night so that he could work uninterrupted. When I suggested that he try switching the work process from large batch to single piece flow, he refused because that would be inefficient. So strong is the instinct to work in large batches that even when a large batch system is malfunctioning, we have a tendency to blame ourselves. Large batches tend to grow over time because moving the batch forward often results in additional work, rework, delays, and interruptions. Everyone has an incentive to do work in ever larger batches, trying to minimize this overhead. This is called the large batch death spiral because unlike in manufacturing, there are no physical limits on the maximum size of a batch. It is possible for batch size to keep growing and growing. Eventually, one batch will become the highest priority project, a bet-the-company new version of the product, because the company has taken such a long time since the last release. 
But now the managers are incentivized to increase batch size rather than ship the product. In light of how long the product has been in development, why not fix one more bug or add one more feature? Who really wants to be the manager who risked the success of this huge release by failing to address a potentially critical flaw? I worked at a company that entered this death spiral. We had been working for months on a new version of a really cool product. The original version had been years in the making and expectations for the next release were incredibly high. But the longer we worked, the more afraid we became of how customers would react when they finally saw the new version. As our plans became more ambitious, so too did the number of bugs, conflicts, and problems we had to deal with. Pretty soon, we got into a situation in which we could not ship anything. Our launch date seemed to recede into the distance. The more work we got done, the more work we had to do. The lack of ability to ship eventually precipitated a crisis and a change of management, all because of the trap of large batches. These misconceptions about batch size are incredibly common. Hospital pharmacies often deliver big batches of medications to patient floors once a day because it's efficient, a single trip, right? But many of those meds get sent back to the pharmacy when a patient's orders have changed or the patient is moved or discharged, causing the pharmacy staff to do lots of rework and reprocessing or trashing of meds. Delivering smaller batches every four hours reduces the total workload for the pharmacy and ensures that the right meds are at the right place when needed. Hospital lab blood collections often are done in hourly batches. Phlebotomists collect blood for an hour from multiple patients and then send or take all the samples to the lab. This adds to turnaround time for the test results and can harm test quality. It has become common for hospitals to bring small batches to patients or a single patient flow of specimens to the lab, even if they have to hire an extra phlebotomist or two to do so, because the total system cost is lower. Pull, don't push. Let's say you are out for a drive, pondering the merits of small batches, and find yourself accidentally putting a dent in your new 2011 blue Toyota Camry. You take it into the dealership for repair and wait to hear the bad news. The repair technician tells you that you need to have the bumper replaced. He goes to check their inventory levels and tells you he has a new bumper in stock and they can complete your repair immediately. This is good news for everyone, you because you get your car back sooner and the dealership because they have a happy customer and don't run the risk of your taking the car somewhere else for repair. Also, they don't have to store your car or give you a loaner while they wait for the part to come in. In traditional mass production, the way to avoid stockouts, not having the product the customer wants, is to keep a large inventory of spares just in case. It may be that the blue 2011 Camry bumper is quite popular, but what about last year's model or the model from five years ago? The more inventory you keep, the greater the likelihood you will have the right product in stock for every customer. But large inventories are expensive because they have to be transported, stored, and tracked. What if the 2011 bumper turns out to have a defect? All the spares in all the warehouses instantly become waste. Lean production solves the problem of stockouts with a technique called pull. When you bring your car into the dealership for repair, 
one blue 2011 Camry bumper gets used. This creates a hole in the dealer's inventory, which automatically causes a signal to be sent to a local restocking facility called the Toyota Parts Distribution Center, PDC. PDC sends the dealer a new bumper, which creates another hole in inventory. This sends a similar signal to a regional warehouse called the Toyota Parts Redistribution Center, PRC, where all parts suppliers ship their products. That warehouse signals the factory where the bumpers are made to produce one more bumper, which is manufactured and shipped to the PRC. The ideal goal is to achieve small batches all the way down to single-piece flow along the entire supply chain. Each step in the line pulls the part it needs from the previous step. This is the famous Toyota just-in-time production method. When companies switch to this kind of production, their warehouses immediately shrink as the amount of just-in-case inventory, called work-in-progress or WIP inventory, is reduced dramatically. This almost magical shrinkage of WIP is where lean manufacturing gets its name. It's as if the whole supply chain suddenly went on a diet. Startups struggle to see their work-in-progress inventory. When factories have excess WIP, it literally piles up on the factory floor. Because most startup work is intangible, it's not nearly as visible. For example, all the work that goes into designing the minimum viable product is, until the moment that product is shipped, just WIP inventory. Incomplete designs, not yet validated assumptions, and most business plans are WIP. Almost every lean startup technique we've discussed so far works its magic in two ways, by converting push methods to pull and reducing batch size. Both have the net effect of reducing WIP. In manufacturing, pull is used primarily to make sure production processes are tuned to levels of customer demand. Without this, factories can wind up making much more, or much less, of a product than customers really want. However, applying this approach to developing new products is not straightforward. Some people misunderstand the lean startup model as simply applying pull to customer wants. This assumes that customers could tell us what products to build and that this would act as the pull signal to product development to make them. As was mentioned earlier, this is not the way the lean startup model works because customers often don't know what they want. Our goal in building products is to be able to run experiments that will help us learn how to build a sustainable business. Thus, the right way to think about the product development process in a lean startup is that it is responding to pull requests in the form of experiments that need to be run. As soon as we formulate a hypothesis that we want to test, the product development team should be engineered to design and run this experiment as quickly as possible, using the smallest batch size that will get the job done. Remember that although we write the feedback loop as build, measure, learn, because the activities happen in that order, our planning really works in the reverse order. We figure out what we need to learn and then work backwards to see what product will work as an experiment to get that learning. Thus, it is not the customer, but rather our hypothesis about the customer 
that pulls work from product development and other functions. Any other work is waste. Hypothesis pull in cleantech. To see this in action, let's take a look at Berkeley-based startup Alphabet Energy. Any machine or process that generates power, whether it is a motor in a factory or a coal-burning power plant, generates heat as a byproduct. Alphabet Energy has developed a product that can generate electricity from this waste heat using a new kind of material called a thermoelectric. Alphabet Energy's thermoelectric material was developed over 10 years by scientists at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratories. As with many clean technology products, there are huge challenges in bringing a product like this to market. While working through its leap of faith assumptions, Alphabet figured out early that developing a solution for waste thermoelectricity required building a heat exchanger and a generic device to transfer heat from one medium to another, as well as doing project-specific engineering. For instance, if Alphabet wanted to build a solution for a utility such as Pacific Gas and Electric, the heat exchanger would have to be configured, shaped, and installed to capture the heat from a power plant's exhaust system. What makes Alphabet Energy unique is that the company made a savvy decision early on in the research process. Instead of using relatively rare elements as materials, they decided to base their research on silicon wafers, the same physical substance that computer central processing units are made from. As CEO Matthew Scullin explains, our thermoelectric is the only one that can use low-cost semiconductor infrastructure for manufacturing. This has enabled Alphabet Energy to design and build its products in small batches. By contrast, most successful clean technology startups have had to make substantial early investments. The solar panel provider SunPower had to build in factories to manufacture its panels and partner with installers before becoming fully operational. Similarly, BrightSource raised $291 million to build and operate large-scale solar plants without delivering a watt to a single customer. Instead of having to invest time and money in expensive fabrication facilities, Alphabet is able to take advantage of the massive existing infrastructure that produces silicon wafers for computer electronics. As a result, Alphabet can go from a product concept to holding a physical version in its hand in just six weeks from end to end. Alphabet's challenge has been to find the combination of performance, price, and physical shape that is a match for early customers. Although its technology has revolutionary potential, early adopters will deploy it only if they can see a clear return on investment. It might seem that the most obvious market for Alphabet's technology would be power plants, and indeed, that was the team's initial hypothesis. Alphabet hypothesized that simple-cycle gas turbines would be an ideal application. These turbines, which are similar to jet engines strapped to the ground, are used by power generators to provide energy for peak demand. Alphabet believed that attaching its semiconductors to those turbines would be simple and cheap. The company went about testing this hypothesis in small batches by building small-scale solutions for its customers as a way of learning. As with many initial ideas, their hypothesis was disproved quickly. Power companies have a low tolerance for risk, 
making them unlikely to become early adopters. Because it wasn't weighed down by a large batch approach, Alphabet was ready to pivot after just three months of investigation. Alphabet has eliminated many other potential markets as well, leading to a series of customer segment pivots. The company's current efforts are focused on manufacturing firms, which have the ability to experiment with new technologies in separate parts of their factory. This allows early adopters to evaluate the real-world benefits before committing to a larger deployment. These early deployments are putting more of Alphabet's assumptions to the test. Unlike in the computer hardware business, customers are not willing to pay top dollar for maximum performance. This has required significant changes in Alphabet's product, configuring it to achieve the lowest cost per watt possible. All this experimentation has cost the company a tiny fraction of what other energy startups have consumed. To date, Alphabet has raised approximately $1 million. Only time will tell if they will prevail, but thanks to the power of small batches, they will be able to discover the truth much faster. The Toyota production system is probably the most advanced system of management in the world. But even more impressive is the fact that Toyota has built the most advanced learning organization in history. It has demonstrated an ability to unleash the creativity of its employees, achieve consistent growth, and produce innovative new products relentlessly over the course of nearly a century. This is the kind of long-term success to which entrepreneurs should aspire. Although lean production techniques are powerful, they are only a manifestation of a high-functioning organization that is committed to achieving maximum performance by employing the right measures of progress over the long term. Process is only the foundation upon which a great company culture can develop. But without this foundation, efforts to encourage learning, creativity, and innovation will fall flat, as many disillusioned directors of HR can attest. The Lean Startup works only if we are able to build an organization as adaptable and fast as the challenges it faces. This requires tackling the human challenges inherent in this new way of working. That is the subject of the remainder of Part 3. Chapter 10. Grow I recently had two startups seek my advice on the same day. As types of businesses, they could not have been more different. The first is developing a marketplace to help traders of collectibles connect with one another. These people are hardcore fans of movies, anime, or comics, who strive to put together complete collections of toys and other promotional merchandise related to the characters they love. The startup aspires to compete with online marketplaces such as eBay, as well as physical marketplaces attached to conventions and other gatherings of fans. The second startup sells database software to enterprise customers. They have a next-generation database technology that can supplement or replace offerings from large companies such as Oracle, IBM, and SAP. Their customers are chief information officers, IT managers, and engineers in some of the world's largest organizations. These are long lead time sales that require salespeople, sales engineering, installation support, and maintenance contracts. You could be forgiven for thinking these two companies have absolutely nothing in common 
yet both came to me with the exact same problem. Each one had early customers and promising early revenue. They had validated and invalidated many hypotheses in their business models and were executing against their product roadmaps successfully. Their customers had provided a healthy mix of positive feedback and suggestions for improvements. Both companies had used their early success to raise money from outside investors. The problem was that neither company was growing. Both CEOs brought me identical-looking graphs showing that their early growth had flatlined. They could not understand why. They were acutely aware of the need to show progress to their employees and investors and came to me because they wanted advice on how to jumpstart their growth. Should they invest in more advertising or marketing programs? Should they focus on product quality or new features? Should they try to improve conversion rates or pricing? As it turns out, both companies share a deep similarity in the way their businesses grow, and therefore a similar confusion about what to do. Both are using the same engine of growth, the topic of this chapter. Where does growth come from? The engine of growth is the mechanism that startups use to achieve sustainable growth. I use the word sustainable to exclude all one-time activities that generate a surge of customers but have no long-term impact, such as a single advertisement or a publicity stunt that might be used to jumpstart growth but could not sustain that growth for the long term. Sustainable growth is characterized by one simple rule. New customers come from the actions of past customers. There are four primary ways past customers drive sustainable growth. 1. Word of mouth. Embedded in most products is a natural level of growth that is caused by satisfied customers' enthusiasm for the product. For example, when I bought my first TiVo DVR, I couldn't stop telling my friends and family about it. Pretty soon, my entire family was using one. 2. As a side effect of product usage. Fashion or status items, such as luxury goods products, drive awareness of themselves whenever they are used. When you see someone dressed in the latest clothes or driving a certain car, you may be influenced to buy that product. This is also true of so-called viral products, such as Facebook and PayPal. When a customer sends money to a friend using PayPal, the friend is exposed automatically to the PayPal product. 3. Through funded advertising. Most businesses employ advertising to entice new customers to use their products. For this to be a source of sustainable growth, the advertising must be paid for out of revenue, not one-time sources such as investment capital. As long as the cost of acquiring a new customer, the so-called marginal cost, is less than the revenue that customer generates, the marginal revenue, the excess, the marginal profit, can be used to acquire more customers. The more marginal profit, the faster the growth. 4. Through repeat purchase or use. Some products are designed to be purchased repeatedly, either through a subscription plan, a cable company, or through voluntary repurchases, groceries or light bulbs. By contrast, many products and services are intentionally designed as one-time events, such as wedding planning. These sources of sustainable growth power feedback loops that I have termed engines of growth. 
Each is like a combustion engine, turning over and over. The faster the loop turns, the faster the company will grow. Each engine has an intrinsic set of metrics that determine how fast a company can grow when using it.